Hey, good morning, everyone. <laughs> Welcome to church. Um, my name is Matthew. I'm the parish pastor here. And what we're going to do before we jump into this morning's text is I, um, we're going to take a minute and pray. There's a lot that's happened in our city in the last uh, 24 to 36 hours. A number of you probably have heard already of the, the death um, in southwest Atlanta of Richard Brooks. Last night there was a drive-by shooting right off Jose Williams just in our backyard. Uh, seven people were shot. Two are dead. Um, there's a lot of unrest, there's a lot of uh, danger, and there's a lot of grief. Uh, One of the things that we just need to recognize, all of us, no matter uh, our political affiliation, no matter how we understand these things, is that there is a a community of people that feels deeply grieved and heartbroken. And it's our responsibility as the church to stand with those who grieve and weep, to be voices of comfort and compassion. And so we're going to pray We're going to ask for justice. We're going to ask for peace. We're going to pray for our city, um, this great city that God loves. So let's pray together, and then I'll read, and we'll go right into the sermon. Father, we um, uh, are—God, we're heartbroken to see our city hurting so much. And, Lord, we um, are—so many of us insulated from this pain— and for those of us who, who live in it every day, God, we, uh, we ask for your comfort to fall on them, your peace to be with them. Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit. Come and bind up and heal. We pray for Richard Brooks' family. We pray for his community. We pray for those who are grieving the loss of their friend, of their son, of their cousin, of sibling, Lord, we pray for your your healing of these wounds that goes so deep, cut so deep. God, help us as a church to, to, to get in touch with this deep grief and to be unafraid to walk into the middle of it, because we know that's where you are. You are not removed from it. You are not on the outside. You are right there. And so, God, we want to follow you, follow Jesus into this, and then we want it, Lord, to stir something in us, to wake something up in us, to move us. Come, Holy Spirit, let your kingdom come to Atlanta. We pray for peace today. We pray, Lord, for no violence. We pray that no one would be hurt today. We ask, Lord, that there would be a a day of rest. Our city would take a breath. Come, Lord Jesus. Come with us now as we... Look at this teaching, God. We pray for wisdom. We pray for insight. We pray for your spirit to speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to read from 1 Samuel 17. It's the beginning of the story of David and Goliath. And it um, comes from our, our teaching on the emotionally healthy spirituality, which we believe is really in many ways the first step towards us becoming the sort of people who can move towards racial justice. And so here's the reading. David said to Saul, let no one's heart fail because of him, that is Goliath. For your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are just a boy and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. And if it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw, strike it down, and kill it. It's hard to do. Um, 
rescuing the lamb from its mouth. Your servant has killed both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, since he has defied the armies of the living God, David said. The Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of this Philistine. And so Saul said to David, go, and may the Lord be with you. And Saul clothed David with his armor. He put on a bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped Saul's sword over the armor, and he tried to walk uh, in vain, for he was not used to them. And then David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these. I'm not used to them. So David removed them, and he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the wadi, and he put them in his shepherd's bag in the pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he drew near the Philistine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we are, as I said, we are, uh, for the months of June and July, we are teaching on emotionally healthy spirituality, and we're doing this because we believe deeply that this is utterly necessary for us to become spiritually mature people. As Pete Scazzaro says again and again, it is impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. But also in the moment that we are living in right now in our city, country, and world, the, the world needs the church to be people who are grounded and, and mature internally, who are in touch with their feelings, who understand uh, their own biases, and who are able to therefore enter into these very divisive, heated uh, areas and, and be people of peace, of healing, of justice. Um, I, every week, am, be, am, am getting opportunities to discover how I am still so far from emotionally mature. I had to go to my team this week and apologize for something. On Monday, I'd been in a meeting with them on Zoom, and I had been in a bad mood. I was in a sour mood. And because of my mood, I was feeling frustrated by some things, and I ended up saying some things that just were not generous and um, one of the things I love about the culture of this place, of Trinity, is that it really is a, a place that seeks to always be deeply generous, not just financially, but relationally, emotionally, how we talk about people, how we think about people. And I, I wasn't. And I was processing this afterwards with one of my mentors, and he helped me get underneath it a little bit and realize that what was kind of active in me was a fear. And that fear was being fed by competition in me. I'm a very naturally competitive person. I always have been. Not like in sports. I figured that out early. That wasn't going to be my thing. But I've just always wanted to come out on top and to win in some ways. And instead, I was feeling like I was falling behind. I was feeling pinched. And, and when you are naturally competitive and you feel pinched, uh, it's a terrible thing. And so I was feeling afraid. And if I went a little deeper into that, uh, I could begin to ask some questions as to like, why, am I so com- why, why does competition matter so much to me? Why does winning matter so much to me? Or to put it another way, um, what is it, what insecurity in me am I looking to winning to somehow soothe or satisfy? What deep fear within me is actually being some, in some way uh, medicated by this constant drive to always achieve, to always come out on top? And if I began to look at that insecurity and that fear and sort of tried to crack it open, what I would find on the inside of that um, is hundreds of stories, people, times when I lost, not just like losing the ball game, but like, like lost, um, public failures, hurtful words from people. That's the sort of stuff that would be all wrapped around this vulnerable middle part that's at the heart of the, uh, that's at the heart of it all. It's a question a question that lays underneath the competition, which lays underneath the fear, which lays underneath the insecurity. 
the question of like, if I never did anything impressive again, would people still love me? And that center part, that vulnerable center, that is where God lives in me. That's where God lives in you. God is always interested in you, where you actually are, and who you actually are. He is not interested in the external trappings, the curated version of your life. I know we spend tremendous energy every single day uh, trying to curate an image of our life to the world so that they can see what we think they want to see. God is not interested in those things. He's not interested in the prayers that I pray so that someone can hear them. He's not interested in the times that I rely on talent or charisma or charm to be liked or to be received or to be impressed. God is not interested in those things, but God is deeply in love with the vulnerable, might I even say little boy behind those things. That's the person that God died for. It's the person that God is going to raise from the dead. That's the person that God is healing and making new. The Lord refuses, I think, wonderfully to actually engage much with our projected versions of ourself. And all of us do it. We talk about this a a lot here, but all of us have some sort of projected version, some false front, some false self, as certain uh, psychologists have called it. Brennan Manning, the Christian writer, he called it the imposter. It's the projected version of myself out into the world. And the thing that we have to remember about our imposter is that it was born in adversity, That false projection of myself, it came from a place of pain within me. It came from the reality that you and I were born into a dangerous world. And as people in a dangerous world, we had to figure out how to survive. And we did. We figured out how to survive. And it was by being someone other than who we really are. And the first step towards emotional health, and not just emotional health, but spiritual health, the first step towards emotional health is beginning to recognize it in ourselves, beginning to dismantle that, and beginning to find out um, what's actually going on inside of us. The African bishop, St. Augustine of Hippo, uh, famously wrote these words. He says, O oh, grant, Lord, grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. Now, why, why would he say that? Why would he say, grant that I may know myself so that I can know you? Why would he do that? It's because uh, until we know ourselves, and I might even add, until we accept ourselves as we are, we will always have a skewed version of God. We will always think that God is more interested in the externals than he actually is. Until we understand ourselves as we really are, we will always believe that God is um, more interested in redeeming the things in us that aren't even real. God cannot redeem your false self. I just want to say that God cannot make new something that I made up. He, or maybe better to say he won't. The primary work of sanctification is beginning to understand that God, what he wants to do, is get to the, the deep core of us, begin to expose it so that he can heal it. One of the things that was so great about Jesus is that Jesus, um, Jesus could see into people's souls. If you read the Gospels, you see it all the time. Where Jesus, uh, whether it's with his disciples or Zacchaeus or Mary and Martha, the woman at the well in John 4, Nicodemus in John chapter 3, even Pilate when he's on trial, Jesus had this penetrating superpower that he could look into the soul of a person and know what was really going on underneath. And of course he did. He had the Holy Spirit. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He was, he was God incarnate. And that's where God lives. That's where God dwells in the real things, past the politics, past, past what all, all the false fronts. 
Jesus was always interested in what was actually going on, the insecurity in Zacchaeus, the deep relational wounding in the woman at the well. And Jesus is after that in you too. One of the things that we have to recognize, though, is that most of us struggle to know what's even going on inside. And the reason is, is because we've been so informed and and even force-fed other people's opinions of us. And that's actually what our text today mostly deals with. In 1 Samuel 17, I mean, the, the, the big story is David and Goliath, but we don't even get to it in today's text. Because before David ever overcome, overcame Goliath, he had to first overcome the opposition from those around him. We didn't read the section of this uh, passage, but before he's conversing with Saul, he shows up from Bethlehem where he's been watching his father's flocks. And Jesse, his dad, sends him to the battle lines, to the front lines, to, to visit his brothers who are away at war and to give them some provisions. And when he shows up, he hears this battle champion, Goliath, taunting the ranks of Israel and saying, I defy you and your God to try and take me down. And David is really bothered by this because David is thinking clearly, he's thinking, don't we have the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob on our team? Don't we have the God who rescued uh, the Israelites from the hand of Pharaoh and cast the Egyptians into the sea? Isn't that the God on our side, the God who overcame the Amalekites and Jericho? And and so he begins to say, like, why are we afraid of this guy? We have the living God on our side. And his brothers take his his faith as, rather than having it be like a reflection of their own lack of faith, they turn it on him and they attack him. They say, you're being sanctimonious. You're being smug. They don't use it as an opportunity to examine themselves because it is always easier to return truth Uh, with an insult than to let it come in. And so they just push him away. You're just being smug. You're always like this. You've always been a show off. He ends up talking to King Saul. King Saul similarly sees him. He's a small kid. He's like, you can't do this. You don't know what you're doing. You're little. He's like, I've killed scarier things. I'm not afraid. I have God with me. I know who I am. Saul's like, okay, well, then you got to wear my armor. He's like, no, I I can't even wear that. I'm just going to have to do this uh, my way. And in the end, David triumphs. He does. He triumphs over Goliath, and that's the big story. But before that, David triumphs over the opposition from those around him. David knew who he was, and because he knew who he was before God, he could be himself. And here's the question. How did David know who he was? Well, this is overly simplistic, but David journaled. <laughs> David prayed. David felt things, and he paid attention to what he was feeling. If you read the Psalms, many of them are accredited to him. And when you read them, you experience a man who appears to be almost emotionally unhinged. But what David is actually just doing is giving voice to emotion, what emotion feels like. And he's not editing himself. He's not cutting himself off. He's letting himself feel and say what he is feeling. And because of that, he knew himself and he knew God in the midst of that place. He had been uh, willing to go to places that many of us are not. However, most of us are not willing to go there. We busy ourselves in tasks. We busy ourselves in information. We busy ourselves in pleasure or in relationships. Some of us have been told our whole life that we can't trust what's going on inside. We can't trust our feelings. Others of us have been told that our feelings are destructive, that they hurt relationships, that people are injured and wounded by them. And so we have just learned that it's way better for me to keep my head down and keep going than to, quote, pamper whatever is happening inside of me. I would much rather just be effective or be efficient or be productive or be liked 
or be informed or be competent than to actually know myself. And you and I have to be willing to recognize that until we know ourselves, we are not going to know God as he is. And until we know God as he is, we are not going to be the spiritually mature people that we long to be and that the world desperately needs. In a moment like right now, it's so easy for us to be active. It's easy to post on social media and to retweet and to like certain things and to pass articles around. It is easy even to make signs and go protest. It is far harder to sit and read a book on racism and let it examine you. To prayerfully spend long hours with the Lord asking him, will you show me how this is showing up in my life? How has my silence been complicit in and even supported systemic racism? That's a far harder thing to do, and yet that's the real work. That's where God is. Not that the other doesn't matter. It does. But as it is growing out of a heart that is fully alive to God. So how do we begin this? Pete gives four steps in his chapter, which I'm sure many of you will read this week, but I'll just rattle through them really quick. The first is he says we have to be willing uh, to to invest in silence and solitude. We have to do this work uh, in our interior through silence and solitude, which is a well-worn drum here at Trinity. We've got to be people who are willing to be quiet, to be alone. We've got to be people who are willing to create space. And it's so hard. I know for some of you right now, you literally don't have a space in your house that is quiet. Um, I know. But we've got to be trying to find places to hide. Pete says that what he used to do is he just would wake up every morning and he would journal his feelings and he did it until he felt like God was okay with them, (laughs) which took a while. The second thing is we have to find trusted companions. I, I, I don't think I ever would have realized what was going on in me if I hadn't had someone to talk to about that, that moment on Monday. Find some people you can trust, hopefully people in your EHS group, people that you can, you can go to with these things and ask questions who will be curious along with the Holy Spirit about you. The third is we're going to have to move out of our comfort zone. This is going to be uncomfortable. This is going to feel risky. It always feels risky to emotionally expose ourselves. And then finally, pray for courage. Pray for courage because this is super hard and you and I will be opposed. There's no doubt about it. There will be opposition to us in this. Um, You would think that people moving towards emotional health would be um, applauded, welcomed by everyone around them, but it, it will not be. In fact, over 15 years in pastoral ministry, I'll just say one of the most disruptive things I have ever seen happen in a marriage, in a close friendship, in a business partnership is because one person in that partnership decided to become healthy. And they broke the dance. The dysfunction was working for the other person. And once you begin to move towards emotional health, you'll discover actually there is more opposition coming from places you never thought it would. So we pray for courage. And that's what we're doing now. For the next two months, the next several weeks, we're going to be getting in touch with this so that God can can meet us in those hidden spaces. And today what I want us to do in closing is I want us to uh, pray together. We're going to pray uh, a, a, a lament, a confession. And it's, it's informed by what's happening right now around us. It's the beginning, it's the opening prayer of how do we begin to come to terms internally with our own biases, with our own brokenness, specifically around race. And so I just want to invite you where you are right now If you can, if it's possible to be still enough to do this, just put your hands out in front of you. And I'm just going to read Psalm 139 to you. 
Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me and know me, O God. Test my heart. See if there is any wicked way within me and lead me in the path that's everlasting. Search us, God, and know us. Try our hearts. See the wicked ways in us and lead us in your everlasting path. Come, Holy Spirit. I'll pray a prompt and then invite you to respond. It's all on the screen. Father, we acknowledge the hold, anger, fear, racism, and prejudice have on our church and nation. Christ, have mercy on us. For all the ways that we are complicit in perpetuating racism, forgive us, O God. For all the ways that we have hidden the light of Christ, forgive us, O God. For all the times we have kept silent, forgive us, O God. For all the times that we have fallen to fear, anger, and retaliation, forgive us, O God. For all the ways that we have given over to apathy, forgive us, O God. For all the ways that our own prosperity has blinded us to the needs of others. Forgive us, O God. Father, protect the innocent. Open the eyes of the blind. Thwart the plans of the greedy and the power hungry. Jesus, make it so. May Christ, who loved us when enemies, teach us how to love one another. Please, Jesus, please teach us, Jesus. May Christ, who said upon rising from the grave, peace be with you. Make us agents of peace. Please teach us, Jesus. Lord, have mercy. Amen. Let's close by praying the Lord's Prayer with one another, remembering that Jesus invites us to pray to our Father, who loves us and is not Uh, not going to give up. It's committed. And so we pray with one voice and with boldness. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who've trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Grace and peace to you. You are loved and we'll see you soon.